Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. All right, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Bloomberg. Coming up today, we've got Representative Andy Levin, Democrat of Michigan, joining us. We're going to talk about the big political news of the day with the Census Bureau redrawing the Electoral College map. The White House is preparing to outline its next big bill, including a big increase in the capital gains tax. Senate Republicans also obviously don't want to undo their 2017 tax cuts as part of this big infrastructure package. I'm here with Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, I left my heart in San Francisco, and I took my congressional district to Texas, the uh, Census Bureau redrawing the political map in the U.S. uh, today with the announcement that Texas is going to get two additional seats, not just in the U.S. House of Representatives, but in the Electoral College. Uh, You also see loser states, including Pennsylvania, New York, Minnesota, a lot of states in the east losing a seat, but for the first time ever, California. We've got sound from the uh, census director on some of the big takeaways today. Let's play that sound. Since 1940, the regional trend with apportionment has been an increase in the number of congressional seats for the South and West and a loss of congressional seats for the North and Northeast and Midwest. That was uh, Census Director Ron Jarman. Uh, again, I'm here with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Rick, let's start with you. Let's skip, the, skip 2022, go straight to 2024. What do you think this means for Democrats, uh, Biden, assuming he runs for re-election, uh, with the broad shifting patterns in the Electoral College? You know, I think that uh, it sets up a really interesting dynamic because there were a couple of new states in play uh, in this election, both Arizona and uh, and Georgia, that uh, were the surprise uh, uh, combinations that allowed Biden to win the presidency. And and Arizona, for one, is uh, missing out in this uh, parade of new congressional districts. So I think part of the dynamic in 24 is going to be that that they're, they're going to have to spend even more time in some of these swing states. As you know, Jack, I mean, they, the Biden campaign actually thought at one point in time that they could put in play Texas. Well, maybe they're going to have to start thinking about how to really put it in play because right now they seem to be collecting the lion's share of uh, the population and the, and the political perks that come along with it. Yeah, I want to dig in on that and bring in Jeannie. Uh, Jeannie, what do you think this means for individual states? My first impression was, look, if Democrats think they can win uh, Texas, then they should go for it. Or does it at least mean bad news for the focus on Ohio? Which states really matter most or uh, matter less than they used to uh, in a presidential race now? 
Well, Jack, I, I'm in one of the loser states that you described so accurately. The New York, are great, which so people aren't losers. <laughs> continues to lose every year, every 10 years, I should say. No, you know, I think one thing I would say is we can't get too far ahead of ourselves on this. What we got today was we got the first sort of basic, if you will, count. And that is each. Sounds like uh, Jeannie's uh, working on her cell phone connection. Uh, we'll we'll talk with her about the infrastructure bill, including broadband, and maybe see if we can fix that in the next piece of legislation. Rick, uh, let me just follow up with you. Is it Texas? Texas is the 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 gold standard now that both parties want to go to, or, or what are your other takeaways in terms of individual states? You know, I think Texas obviously is 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 one of the big beneficiaries, and 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 you see it just demographically, right? I mean, even the news cycle is is trumpeting. How many people are leaving California and going to Texas, leaving the Northeast and, and going to Texas? But it does continue. The drumbeat that we've seen for quite some time, probably the last four decades, is the movement from the Northeast and Midwest into the South and the West. And so that's a macro trend that is simply not going to abate. And so when you look at where we're going to be as a country with the power in the elected office, it's going to be in these southern states, Florida, Florida. Uh, uh, in, in places like Arizona, sooner or later, they'll pick up another state. That was one of the actual surprises to me, is everybody was predicting Arizona would pick up a state because it has had in-migration, but they didn't pick up anywhere near enough in-migration to actually give themselves a 10th seat. So, uh, yeah, I think Texas becomes a hot spot. I think Democrats are, are thinking about how to win in places like Texas. I think they're now going to look at these congressional districts, and they're going to be all rejiggered now, right, to make room for another two. And they're going to try and fight hard to ensure that they actually pick up seats within that Texas delegation. And last big picture question I think that I have is, you know, I, I saw this and I thought, what did, what does this mean after the Trump realignment of the GOP? So much focus on the Midwest, Ohio, the Rust Belt, the white working class. And yet you saw, you know, with the focus in a, a very racially diverse state like Georgia, which became a swing state, uh, a, a, I guess, a, push in the different direction. What does this mean if in the big picture we're taking away political clout from the Rust Belt and putting it into the Sun Belt in terms of the demographics of who are the real swing voters in this country? Well, I think you, you also look inside this data exactly how you were seeing it from sort of more Midwestern states and Northeastern states into the South and the West. But even within this data, there are inklings that there may be a migration out of cities. And so when you look at that, the two in combined has to be a troubling feature for Democrats because Democrats own the cities. They get 90 percent of the vote in most of the major cities of America. If there is migration out into suburbs and then in addition to that out of states that they typically are strong in, it could really you know, evacuate a lot of their normal, uh, I'd say, base state options. And we saw even this election cycle uh, a lot of what was traditional base states all of, a sudden, all of a sudden became targeted states and swing states. And so I think you're going to see a continued movement in that direction. Well, touching on, you know, you're getting on to the uh, r rural versus urban issue within the states. Uh, this doesn't just matter for the 2024 uh, presidential race. This is going to matter a lot for midterms. And now all these states have to redraw their uh, districts. This is reapportionment. We're going to redistricting, which I know is contentious. I lived in Arizona when they redrew the lines there in 2011. That was quite the issue. Uh, Rick, any initial takeaway? 
ways in terms of, I mean, in these states that are going to lose seats, somebody's going to be out of a job or you're going to have incumbents running against each other. What does this mean uh, practically for the states that are losing seats in the midterms? Yeah, losing seats in the midterms is the toughest, right? Because you're going to have legislatures that are dominated by the parties that now have to carve out uh, one, if not more, seats. And and that is a scramble. Plus, this census is coming in a little later than normal. So, uh, you know, it got started late. It's cu- The results are coming in late. And this is the first time political parties and uh, the people at the state level are actually seeing the data that they need to draw those lines. So it's going to dominate the political discussion in these states that are losing seats because they've got to figure out how to carve it out. And and nine times out of 10, it becomes a partisan issue uh, depending upon the structure of that uh, redistricting process. Now, let's bring Jeannie back. Jeannie, I want to give you probably the hardest question I can think of uh, because this stuff gets really contentious and really complicated. What happens next? What's the schedule look like? We have these basic numbers of how many seats each state gets. Uh, then we have to redraw them. What does the redistricting process look like? And, and is there enough time? Rick was just saying we're on a, a tough schedule because the census was finished late. Uh, w- what does that mean, practically speaking, for the next year or so? Yeah, I was so glad Rick mentioned that, you know, we forget that this was late, not only because of the pandemic, but because in July, the Trump administration shut the cut the uh, count short a bit. And so this came in late. And now what we're looking at is about mid-August when we get the breakdowns that the states need to start to redraw those districts. So you're coming incredibly close to the 2022 marker. Not only that, states that lawsuit may consider filing lawsuits. And so we don't know how many will, if any, but that's also a calculation here. So this is going to have a huge impact on 2022, but difficult now to know how much of an impact, who files those lawsuits. We never have a perfect census count in this country, obviously, but we won't know until June and then December when the census tells us how accurate they believe this count was, which is merely a snapshot of what was happening last year, about April 2020. So we've got a ways to go on this, and it's coming up, I think, incredibly close to what you would need to do something in terms of 2022. So I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all plays out. Jeannie, that's a good point. I, I know there's so much litigation, so many lawsuits forever when it comes to redistricting. But what do you what do you sue over when you get a, a number of seats that you don't like in reapportionment? I know New York was really, really close to actually not losing a seat this time. But what what argument do you make? Is this like a recount? Well, it it would be an argument that the count was essentially not done accurately. There was an undercount, and we are going to get numbers on that. There is a private organization that looks at that. The census is going to tell us in December whether there was overcounting or undercounting and where it was. What if it it impacts, you know, more or less people of a certain race, ethnicity, sex, age, area? Those are all the kinds of things that states are going to take very seriously because, as I always tell students, this is about power and of course those numbers matter more than anything so this is not only you know sort of a boring count but it is about who's going to have power going into 2022 and as it pertains to 2024 for the electoral college this is about power. That's pretty much an evergreen statement when you come uh, across this kind of conversation. I do want to point out, in some cases, maybe we'll see gerrymandering to protect uh, the incumbents, especially of a majority party. Uh, But Michigan and California, both 
set to lose a seat, and they both have independent redistricting commissions. This was a, quite the debate a little while back in, in terms of the legality of independent redistricting commissions. So we're not going to see that there. It's going to be out of their hands. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Thanks, Charlie. This is Jack Fitzpatrick here with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Negotiations continue over an infrastructure plan. President Biden has called for two and a quarter trillion dollars for a wide range of programs. Don't think Republicans like the climate stuff in there very much. Republicans uh, in the Senate have countered with something much narrower, coming in at five hundred seventy billion dollars. Now, earlier today, my colleague David Weston spoke to West Virginia Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito, one of the authors of the slimmed down version, and he asked her if Republicans could ever agree on increased taxes as a pay for. Let's play the sound on that. I don't think there's any appetite to go back. We all we all voted for the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. Well, not all of us, but most of us, and believe that it had the resultant uh, uptick in in our uh, economic activity, wages, and more people working before pre-pandemic. So I think that we, with uh, the trust fund, with user fees, we could maybe look at vehicle miles traveled. We can look at getting some of that those COVID dollars redirected to infrastructure. We think we can cover the whole package, and that gives us, I think. Uh, a, a huge leg to stand on in terms of saying we don't want to raise taxes in this environment. That's the author of the Republican counter offer, Senator Shelley Moore Capito. Uh, Rick Davis, I want to bring you in here. What do you think about that as seemingly a red line? Am I right in calling that a red line? Uh, it, it, it seems almost intractable with Biden pushing for significant corporate tax increases. What do you what do you make of Capito pushing back on that? Well, you know, Jack, I think I'd call it maybe a pink line because um, what was interesting is she obviously said, hey, 2017 tax cuts helped the economy. I mean, we did great with those, and, and that's a fact in the books. Uh, but in this current period, when we're trying to dig out of a uh, COVID economy, uh, she actually talked about finding revenue in different ways. And and so just the fact that she's open to looking for revenue in, 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 in different ways, not just redirecting COVID dollars, indicates that there's some interest on these uh, in, in, in the GOP and the Senate to actually look for ways to fund their proposal, which is, what, a fifth of the Biden proposal, just over $500 billion. But there's a lot of similarities in that bill, too. So it'll be interesting to see how now the negotiations start. We've got a baseline for for what we're currently spending on all these areas, and then we have a Republican plan and a Democrat plan. Yeah, Jeannie Shanzano, I have a, a philosophical question for you. I've been trying to work this out in my head when people like Senator Capito say, you know, we don't want to redo, we don't want to undo what we did with the 2017 tax cut. How much of that is, in your mind, 
ideology because they don't want to uh, increase taxes. But how much uh, is a factor in legislative negotiations uh, is pride. They don't want to undo the legacy of the Trump administration. Is that a significant factor in these talks in your mind? I think it is. I think they are deeply concerned about anything that smells of a step back from what they view as the successes of the Trump administration. And certainly for Republicans, that tax bill, along with criminal justice reform, along with deregulation, the court packing, that was all, you know, the successes of the administration. They don't want to step back from that. I also think this is a lot of politics, of course. You can never sort of divorce that from this discussion because because for Republicans, they don't want to go into 2022 with any sort of descriptor that they have raised taxes. And of course, they really need to seriously consider an offer like a 25% corporate tax, in, you know, an increase of the corporate tax rate to 25%. That is a, that is, you know, they never had a real, you know, opposition to that. They went down further than anybody suggested. And to think that they could go to 25 shouldn't be that sort of off-putting. So I, I do think there should be room to maneuver there. And I think when Rick uses the term pink line, which I'm going to steal from you, Rick Davis, I think that's an indication, you know, the corporate tax rate is one of those areas where they really should be able to negotiate that. Rick, what do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the reference to 2022. We haven't heard anybody say, read my lips, no new taxes. But is it politically feasible heading into these midterms where Republicans are trying to dig themselves out of the minority uh, for them to agree to some sort of corporate tax rate increase? Or is that just anathema? Well, Jeannie's right. I mean, no Republicans want to be tagged with being the guy who raised taxes. But we do forget that in this first 100 days, there's already been a pretty sizable tax cut, right? It came in the form of stimulus payments and tax credits, but these are tax cuts. And we have it now to the point where, you know, people earning $75,000 less don't pay any federal taxes. And those who, who earn a little bit more, 100000 only pay 1.8% federal tax. And so you have all these people coming off the tax books already. And so this whole tax debate is kind of interesting because we've had a big tax cut in the first hundred days of the Biden administration, and now he wants to raise taxes uh, on the wealthy, uh, obviously, and the corporate tax rate. Uh, so those two things, I think, are probably going to go down to a party line vote, and the, the Biden folks are going to have to convince people like uh, Senator Manchin to walk the plank if they're going to raise revenue for these big spending items. Now, Manchin's already said, oh, I could see a little higher tax rate. I, I can imagine he would be okay with a higher uh, uh, tax uh, rate on uh, wealthy individuals too. So I think they're in the, the, the game range of being able to move something on that end. It won't be anywhere near what they're asking for today, but there may actually be a tax rise and Republicans right. won't vote for it. Some potential middle ground there. Shelley Moore Capito, Senate Republicans saying toughest part of this is going to be uh, the tax issues, but we're seeing some bipartisan talks on infrastructure coming up uh, a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk more about tax issues, capital gains tax. Uh, for now, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.
You know, today, uh, President Biden is preparing to uh, get into the business of raising the capital gains tax. We're going to hear more about that in his joint session speech on Wednesday. Uh, We've got a little bit of a preview today from one of his top economic advisors, Brian Deese, the director of the National Economic Council, uh, said at today's press briefing that Biden's upcoming plan would set the new threshold for a higher capital gains rate taxes at those earning more than a million dollars a year off capital gains. That's, in his words, the three-tenths, the top three-tenths of a percent of taxpayers. Let's hear more. Uh, Let's get the sound from Brian Deese. We're talking about uh, a a tax change that would affect, again, the three-tenths of one percent, the uh, top sliver of households. Um, And number two, the principle here is to equalize the treatment of of ordinary income and capital gains. Now, I've been wondering if they're pushing this for the money that's going to be brought in in increased revenue or if this is more of an ideological tax measure on its own. I'm curious if we can uh, parse that out based on how they're selling this. We have a a little bit more sound from Brian Deese uh, where he gets more into the idea of fairness. Uh, Let's play that sound. Uh, making this sort of change for that top, you know, three-tenths of a percent of taxpayers, uh, equalizing ordinary income and capital gains is, uh, is would restore fairness and do so in a way that wouldn't uh, significantly affect investment and that would allow us to make really high-return investments uh, for which there's been broad bipartisan support. All right. Now, Jeannie Shanzano, when you're listening to them uh, prepare to sell this, and they'll get into the details and and really pitch it on Wednesday in the joint session speech, are you hearing a legislative measure that really is part of this next package, and this is a a pay-for for for the so-called American Families Plan? Or is this a, a campaign measure? Does this stand on its own? And is this just the tax policy that the Biden administration wants to push? You know, I I think, Jack, it's it's a bit of both. Um, You know, I do hear the White House making an argument, importantly, about fairness. They want to tax wealth, not work, or they want to, you know, find an equilibrium between taxation on wealth versus work. But but you raise such an important point about will this increase revenue? And there are a number of studies coming out that suggest it will not. And if it's not increasing revenue, this is a philosophical argument than about fairness. And we heard over the weekend what Republicans are coming back and saying. They are calling this increase from 20 to 36.9 or proposed increase socialism. We heard Chris Christie say that over the weekend, saying this is about income redistribution. This is about moving the country towards socialism. So I think we're going to hear more of this back and forth in this debate, which in my mind becomes more philosophical versus an actual increase in revenue that can be used to pay for a lot of this second part of this infrastructure plan. Yeah, Rick Davis, I want to ask you, you know, we heard so much discussion in 2020 about the uh, the hits on Democrats calling them socialists and how much that might have done uh, in South Florida, a lot of uh, Cuban-American voters. When you hear the rhetoric on this, and we'll get more into the numbers on the legislative proposal, but on the rhetoric, uh, what does this make you think about 2022 and how they define the party in 2024 in terms of Democrats, the word socialist, uh, and their rhetoric on taxes now. Yeah, Jack, I think you uh, uh, plugged into the current political debate. Uh, It worked in um, the elections in 2020. Uh, There's good evidence that it influenced uh, 
uh, Hispanic voters in South Florida, uh, Cubans, Venezuelans, Puerto Ricans, uh, who have a sense of you know what destruction uh, can be wrought upon your economy in a socialist environment. And I think it's exactly what Jeannie described. I mean, you now see Republicans starting to retread that argument because in this case, I mean, you think about it, the, 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 the redistribution of wealth is actually happening in front of us. I mean, five, almost $500 billion in tax cuts have already been done in the first 100 days. And, and, and that is compared to an annual bill from the 2017 Trump tax cut of, of, of only about 130. So, I mean, like, this is the biggest tax cutter for the lower half of the uh, economic equation in the United States. And, and now he's loading up on uh, you know wealth, wealth accumulation and, and productive power of the country. And, and I think that's where the evidence is going to come. So will people use this in the midterms especially? Absolutely. This will be number one, if not uh, uh, the biggest issue Republicans use uh, on, on the economy going into the midterms. Now, Rick, I, I'm curious how the Democrats counter that potentially with tax policy. There's this push to make the uh, temporary child tax credit permanent. And I'm curious, when the rubber meets the road, I mean, is that probably Democrats' top priority in terms of tax legislation going forward? Or how do they balance these uh, these different things that they want to do with the tax code? Well, I think they've found out that they can do both, right? I mean, I do think it's a um, an effort by Democrats to sort of buy in a lot of people who have a lot of pressure during COVID, especially um, with um, with uh, their families. And so the tax credit was very well received on Capitol Hill, actually. It was very few people argued against it. Uh, but, but, but nobody thought it was actually going to be a permanent tax cut, right? Everyone thought it was just part of the relief package, you know, give, give families a break during COVID. Uh, now, all of a sudden, it looks like it's one of these, the, the largest tax cuts uh, that, uh, that, that, that has happened in a long time, including the 2017 uh, Trump plan. So uh, he's fueled his his run up to tax increases by a huge gift to the American taxpayer, really at the lower ends of the uh, of the economic equation. I mean, you know, when you talk about people making $100,000 who aren't really paying much at all in taxes and have gotten on top of that stimulus payments and child tax credits, it's been a windfall. And our economy is showing signs of that. It's been good for the economy. The question is, is it good for the macro economy going forward? If you start marking this on a 10-year basis, you're going to lose a lot of revenue. And how do you then pay for all these activities like infrastructure that we talked about earlier? Brian Deese emphasizing this is aimed at the top 0.3% of earners, who he says get about 70% of their income from capital returns uh, rather than labor wages. Coming up soon, we're going to have Congressman Andy Levin, Democrat from Michigan, a former labor uh, union lawyer, joining us. Uh, excited to ask him about not only the Michigan uh, redistricting news, but uh, the votes he's going to take. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. 
I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, along with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, we've got a good guest with us today on a Monday, Representative Andy Levin, Democrat from Michigan, the 9th District. Congressman, really happy to have you on. Uh, it's a timely time to get a Michigan lawmaker on, especially. I've got to get your, your immediate response to today's news. Uh, I don't think this was unexpected, but your home state is losing a House seat uh, going forward. Uh, what's what's your what's your reaction to the the lay of the land and the political map after today's Census Bureau news? Well, as you say, you know we've known this was likely to happen for a long time. So um, you know, I mean, I think it's great that Michigan voters, all of us, uh, in 2018 amended our constitution by referendum so that voters will choose politicians and not the other way around in in our reapportionment. That's for Congress and for State Senate and State House. So we're going to have a new citizen commission taking the detailed results of the census when we get them and uh, dividing up uh, Michigan into 13 House districts instead of 14. You know, one time we had 19. So <laughs> we've, uh, you know, Michigan uh, grows a little bit, but other parts of the country have been growing more. And that's now, the result. Congressman, I, I am very interested in this independent redistrict, redistricting commission, how that changes things going forward. But I've got to ask uh, maybe prematurely about 2024, because this affects the Electoral College, of course. Uh, yeah. you're, you're seeing a shrinking influence from the Rust Belt, basically, uh, more in the Sun Belt. Uh, how, how concerned are you about dwindling influence from not only Michigan, but states like yours? in 2024 and beyond? Well, I think that, uh, you know, ultimately we've got to move towards a system where just the people of the country directly elect presidents or the, you know, the popular vote compact among the states where we, if we don't formally get rid of the Electoral College, you know, de facto we do. But Michigan's a really big state. Um, Ohio's a really big state. Wisconsin, we still got a lot of people here in the industrial Midwest, and we're scrappy, and we'll keep fighting for influence in Washington, uh, but we'll have a few less uh, representatives to do it, that's for sure. Representative Levin, it's great to talk to you. I know you introduced legislation um, on the floor today, um, which yes. concerns drug prices. And I wanted to see if you could tell us about that. And also, if you, um, as a sort of a part two, I'm sorry to do this, do you think the Democratic promise to allow government to negotiate prescription drug prices should be included in this second infrastructure bill as well? Yeah, so clearly uh, we need to negotiate for drug prices. It's crazy that Americans pay way more for drugs, usually that are invented here, often with subsidy from our federal government, right, in, to, in the basic research. And then Americans pay more for the drugs than people in other countries do. So that's crazy, and we've got to do that. My bill is called the Stop Games Act, and it I'm one of these people who's I'm, I'm a progressive and I'm pragmatic at the same time. So I'm actually all for Medicare for all and, and having a single-payer system. But this bill would take a modest but really important step to bringing down drug prices by stopping the games that Big Pharma plays with the citizen petition process of the Food and Drug Administration 
basically, when a patent's up and it's time for competition from generics, let it happen without a lot of obstacles. And it's it's a bipartisan bill, and I really hope we can pass it in this Congress because it would save Americans a lot of money. Congress, when I I want to jump in and ask, you know, we're hearing more and more uh, pushback from Republicans on not the details of the infrastructure proposal itself, but on the pay-fors, uh, and so much pushback on changes to the corporate tax rate. When you hear uh, what's coming out of the Senate Republican conference on pay-fors for an infrastructure proposal, what's your take on whether there is common ground or can be common ground on those tax issues? Well, my my main reaction is I'm really glad Joe Biden's president because <laughs> I think that his his approach really makes a lot of sense. He genuinely wants to talk to Republicans and Democrats. He's got decades of experience of bipartisanship, but he's not about to slow down the train for months uh, and not be able to get things done. So we have to have dialogue. But the bottom line is he doesn't even want to raise corporate taxes up to as high as they were before the, the Trump bill, you know, tax bill changed everything. And uh, we've got to have the wealthy and corporations pay some reasonable share of the burden of running society, of having a, a good infrastructure to to enable business to thrive. And so, you know, we're open to all ideas, but the idea that, that business won't pay its fair share is not going to fly. Congressman, uh, I was wondering if I could press you on that, because, I mean, there are so many things in the pipeline, and we just went through a huge spending bill for the uh, coronavirus um, uh, stimulus. Now, you know, we're, we're lining up for a big hot debate on the American Jobs Plan, two and a, half, two and a quarter trillion dollars of the infrastructure spending. And then right after that, comes the American Families Plan, another $1.9 trillion. And these increases, uh, almost a doubling of the marginal rate and significantly higher capital gains rates, are they enough to be able to accommodate? Let's say Joe Biden got what he wanted, which we know is not practical. But um, at what point will that tax increase, as discussed today by the administration, not be enough, especially when you have other things like what you just described, like uh, Medicare for All, that are still embedded in some of these plans? Well, Med Medicare for All is not embedded in Joe Biden's plans. That's my... <laughs> but, well, it's not in the uh, American Family Plan, but it would be something that they would pursue potentially with congressional support. Well, Joe Biden's not for it. So, but, but in any event, I get your, your, your main point for sure. And I think that one of the key things that we have to realize is that we've had a lot of rhetoric about how cutting taxes for wealthy people and corporations will pay for itself, which has been proven over and over not to be the case. But on the other hand, there is tremendous evidence that that infrastructure really does pay for itself. I was, I was a construction worker building the Tenley Town, the elevator shaft for the Tenley Town Metro Station when the D.C. Metro was built. The amount of private wealth that was, has been created around those metro stations just in D.C. is phenomenal. And infrastructure really can drive capitalism in a fantastic way. So I think people need to stop whining and pony up and pay their fair share so that we can have outstanding transit, outstanding high-speed rail, 
outstanding bus service, great roads and bridges and, and sewers, and it puts a lot of people to work. The people who get the jobs pay taxes and help uh, with our revenue situation. And, and then, you know, business needs to pay a little bit, too. So I'm, I'm really bullish on infrastructure in particular as a really sensible investment. Congressman, I want to change topics a little bit and ask, because you are a member of the Progressive Caucus, and I know there are a number of progressive lawmakers pushing back on the Biden uh, plan for a slight increase in defense spending, uh, even some calling for a 10 percent cut to the military budget. What do you want to see on defense spending, and what's next for progressives in that pushback against what they saw from Biden? Yes, well, I, I think that we do spend too much on the military. And I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I'm very, uh, you know, plugged into what's going on with Iran and North Korea and problem, you know, Venezuela, all around the world. We need to have by far the biggest, strongest, most up-to-date military in the world, no question. I don't think we need to be bigger than the next eight countries combined. And so... It, you know, we, cutting the military by 10% is a pretty modest uh, thing when you look at how it's grown immensely year after year after year. The president is ending our 20-year involvement in Afghanistan as, in terms of having our military there on the ground. And, you know, I think it's time to make some pretty modest cuts to military spending to enable us to take care of domestic spending and put a bigger emphasis on diplomacy and human rights. Congressman, can I ask you a 20-second question while we still have you, because you're on foreign <laughs> affairs. Uh, when we hear this news about AstraZeneca vaccine, 60 million going internationally, how much needs to focus on India in particular and anywhere else you want to see those go? Yeah, I think India is where they need to go right now. But I think the United States has a huge opportunity here to step up and lead on vaccinating the whole world, it's necessary for public health. It's also a great expression of soft power for the United States. Congressman Andy Levin, Democrat of Michigan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that's going to be it for today's show. Good big news day. Thanks again to Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, for now, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.